Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord God, here is our money. And uh, money will have come in in other ways every week, every month, through our banks. And there are all kinds of ways in which a church can use money. But just staying with that image from Rowan Williams, we give you, with this money, our desire that fundamentally you would use this and all that we are and we have to let the message be known across this world that we are in a quagmire and we need Jesus to pull us out. For we ask it in his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. Right, a question not about Sunday, but about Mondays. I know that a number of you are in a world of education. You may be facing GCSEs or A-levels or bits of a degree uh, later this year. And I'm going to ask you in two seconds to put your hands up if that's the case. But I don't just want to think about those people who are being examined in that sense. I want to know how many others of you as well face some kind of assessment or review. Perhaps your teacher and your school is about to be offsteaded. Perhaps you're working for off-what or off-gen or any of the others. So would you just park your hand in the air for a moment? If, if in some way your job is a job, or your, what you do during the day is something that faces review and assessment. Not a trick question, just want to know. It's a reasonable proportion, thank you. Do please put your hands down. Well, Nicodemus is from off God. Please find Nicodemus on page uh, 1065. He is a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, One of the many things they did is off God. Jesus has burst upon the scene, and it's about time that someone went and checked him out. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Even if he hadn't been from the ruling council, he would have been from the Pharisees, one of the self-appointed guardians of the truth in an age of compromise. Now, later on in John's Gospel, we'll see him much more on Jesus' side, and perhaps it was as a result of this interview. But he starts as someone who wants to examine Jesus and the stories about him. He's even learned uh, the lesson that uh, human resources officers teach those who are involved in examination and assessment. He uh, offers the affirming things uh, before anything challenging. So he comes to Jesus and says, well, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. It's not a grand claim of belief in the the way that... uh, Uh, Ralph was describing, he doesn't mean we know that you have come from beside the Father. It's just a kind of general language of much more vagueness. Yes, your mission is a godly one. So um, Nicodemus has come to Jesus. Imagine them sitting opposite the table, and uh, Jesus is on the other side, and Nicodemus says, okay, now, this is what you've done, and the stories we've heard, and I've come here to talk to you about this. 
And Jesus is going to have none of that at all. He uses this solemn and serious introduction uh, that we have translated as, I tell you the truth. Uh, Those of us uh, who may have had older versions will know the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. That's what he's saying here. And he takes the argument, he won't talk about this middle ground of discussion, he takes the argument straight to say, no, we're not going to talk about this, Nicodemus, we're going to talk about you. Now, from what he says in verse 4, Nicodemus seems quite old. And when Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, he's using a phrase, the kingdom of God, that some of the Jews thought would be God um, arriving uh, with his rule and reign upon the earth at the end of all things as the Messiah came to reign. So I guess if Nicodemus was old, he would be thinking, well, I've probably missed that now. But Jesus moves it into the here and now. Listen, old man, no one is going to see the kingdom unless they are reborn here and now. You thought you were coming to talk about a nice kind of thing in the middle. But no, no, we're going to talk about you. Well, pity the translators. There's a little note you can see, if you've got good eyesight, at the end of verse 3, A. It could mean born again, or could mean born from above. That's what the note at the bottom says. Either way, it's a second birth. It's a birth you haven't been through yet. And it's worth dwelling on that because of its impact over the centuries, the power of a second birth. Because isn't that, isn't that what's been going on in terms of the power in Tahrir Square, in Cairo, over the last, what, nearly three weeks? Those Egyptians longing, longing to throw off a past that they don't want to feel part of. They want to start again. And more personally, how many of us have reason or have had reason to long uh, personally for a new start in some way? Uh, When I was at university, there was a, a great deal of conversation on this topic. If you'd had sex before you really should have done, what kind of newness did newness before God mean? Did it matter if you weren't a Christian when things went wrong and now you were a Christian? And all of us can think of something we've done, something we've been that we can look back on. And we ache, if we're honest. We absolutely ache with the desire to go back behind that thing and change the route that was taken. It might be trivial. It might be something absolutely enormous. And there are those who approach the subject of a new start of a rebirth with a kind of desperate hope because it's what they feel they need. And knowing that, we can think that Jesus, in this passage, is offering the purest of good news. But he doesn't seem to think that he is. He isn't saying, is he, to Nicodemus, welcome, Nicodemus, it's great to see you just opt for rebirth, and it's all going to be okay. The tone is much more negative than that. Nicodemus, let me tell you, 
unless he's born again, no one gets to see the kingdom of God. He expects the notion of rebirth, of this kind of starting over, to be a challenge. And we can guess why, because we've also known other people. Not just those for whom it's a a hope, but those who might be nervous. Those who've heard the message of Jesus, perhaps, over the years, including about rebirth, and they do not approach it with the thrilling excitement that, wow, change might be possible, but with a sinking anxiety that change might be necessary. How many young men have I spoken to over the years who can see much of the truth of Christ, but they're just terrified that they will have to give up on drink and sex? They are afraid of the very newness that seems so attractive to others. And it seems almost to boil down to this in terms of the encounters we have with people. If you love what your life has been and is, then rebirth is a threat and not a promise. Because you love what you've already got. But if you want to turn your back on some way on what your life has been and is, then rebirth sounds like all good news, all joy, and no threat at all. And if it's that important, then we have to delve into it, and mercifully, Jesus does just that. For the moment, let's stay with Jesus. Nicodemus, in verse 4, is right about one thing. He realizes that this is not about a change, even a radical change, in his circumstances. It's something so radical that we're going to have to start asking questions about whether Jesus means what he seems to say. Going back into the womb, and then Jesus goes on in verses 5 to 8 to make it even more impossible than it seemed at first. You've got to be born of water and spirit. Now, let's forget baptism. The last thing on Jesus' mind at this point, I'm sure, is teaching Nicodemus about the importance that Christian baptism is going to have in the Church of God over the next few millennia. That's not what water and spirit must mean. It can't mean, well, you have to get baptized in water first, and there's also a baptism of the Spirit, and I'll look after that bit. And it doesn't help, incidentally, again, a translation problem, unfortunately, that um, verse, uh, verse 5 has put in uh, too many thes. It actually reads, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. There's no the. So they're not as distinguished as the English language makes them sound. They're lumped together. And the key to this passage is that Jesus is saying things, at least he is according to his own words in verse 10, that he expected Nicodemus to understand, and he's frustrated that Nicodemus doesn't understand them. So whatever meaning we give to this, and it was one of those times, the first time I can remember amazingly preaching on this passage, uh, and I was astonished at how difficult it is just to understand. If you just take out the famous bits, what you're left with is it's quite difficult. But whatever born of water and spirit means, it has to be something that Nicodemus could have understood. 
And what Jesus says about him is, uh, how is it you don't understand, given that you're a teacher in Israel? Well, a teacher in Israel would have been expected to teach from the, te- from the, uh, uh, the Old Testament, as we call it. So whatever this means, this phrase, it's got to be accessible via the Old Testament. It's got to be something that lies within the existing teaching that Nicodemus would have known. Now, last week, Mark had you dotting, had us dotting all over the place. I've just got one for you tonight. Would you please turn to Ezekiel and and chapter 36... Uh, I'm trying to find the page number for you. Uh, 868. 868. Ezekiel is in the middle of a prophecy, uh, appropriately, because he was a prophet. Um, And he is really saying to uh, the people of God, God says you are a complete waste of space. However, I'm going to sort things out, and I need you to understand, I'm just going to sort things out because of the sake of the glory and the holiness of my name. I'm not sorting it out for your sake, because you are a waste of space. But I am going to sort it out because I want to be upheld as glorious and holy. So, uh, verse 25. Well, let's go back to 24 for a minute, because they're in exile, and and, uh, so it explains the context. It's God speaking, for I will take you out of the nations, back from exile, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now that kind of promise was washing around in the days of Jesus. They got so desperate that they were looking deep into the deep uh, prophecies of old to say life is so bad, what might it be like if we can get beyond that badness? And there you've got it, water and spirit. It's not the only time you get them brought together, but it's perhaps one of the clearest. This is what God is going to do in the days when he acts in power to save them again, to pull them together. So if this is God promising to act with water and spirit, then when Jesus picks up that language, it means that the new birth isn't a kind of nice extra. But it's going to be the very center of what God does when he saves us from ourselves, from the captivity that we're in to sin, from hardened hearts and the condemnation that follows. And you shouldn't be surprised about that, Nicodemus, because you're supposed to know this stuff. What you do have to be clear about, however, is that yes, you might be a member of the ruling council. And yes, you might be terribly important in the things of religion as this world understands them. But all that fleshiness can do is give rise to more of the same. Follow that road and we end up with off-God inspectors. If the promise of Ezekiel, if new birth is to come to pass, it will not be because you've inspected it into existence, Nicodemus. It will be because God's Spirit has given birth to Spirit. It's not in your control. The wind blows where it pleases, 
And in Greek, the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. And you can't inspect the wind, can you? So don't try. Just recognize your need. And then in verse 9, we are, by the way, back in John now. In verse 9, Nicodemus says, what? That at least is the tone of his question. He is not uh, saying, how can this be? This is so wonderful that I can scarcely take it in. But the tone of his language is, how can this be? This makes no sense at all. That's a very important question. Because it makes Jesus' point for him. Not only is it true that you don't understand, you can't understand, Nicodemus. If God doesn't give you understanding, then you are going to be clueless forever. Look, I'm talking about the wind. I'm explaining new birth as you people need to experience it. And if you can't get that, we're 10 and 11 now, if you can't get that, how are you ever going to understand if I really went to town and talked about the glories of heaven? I tell you the truth, verse 11, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. Still, you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How are you going to believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, in those days of Jesus, there were running around the place, stories of great teachers. Uh, Elijah, certainly, that's a biblical one. There were legends about Moses uh, who'd ascended into heaven. And Jesus says, yeah, but none of those has come down, have they? The only one qualified to talk about heavenly things is the Son of Man who did come down from heaven. And you won't believe him, that is me. Nicodemus, you came to me saying, we know you're from God. Well, Nicodemus, we know some things too, we do, and you won't believe them. So now, Nicodemus, get this, because this is what it's all about. And we get this funny little story about the snake in the desert. Verse 14. When God brought a plague of snakes on his own people for their disobedience in the desert. Moses pleaded before God for them, and God said, tell you what, make a bronze snake. And when you lift that up and you look at it, the people will be healed. And so it proved. And I suspect that it's not a very familiar story for us these days from Numbers 21. But that's our problem, not Jesus's. And Jesus then looks to his own lifting up as God's provision so that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Well, you've um, had to exercise your uh, eyesight tonight. I'm going to ask you to do it again. If you look at the beginning of 16 and then the end of 21, you'll see quotation marks. And at the end of 21, you'll see a little H. And if you look at the bottom, it says, some interpreters end the quotation marks at verse 15. Which sounds a bit sniffy to me as a note. Some interpreters do, but we're not going to. We're going to carry them on. But there are no quotations in the manuscript from which the Bible is taken. We always have to guess what's a quotation and what isn't. 
And it's true that these verses, 16 to 21, feel different. We don't hear the Son of Man anymore. We hear of the only begotten Son. It feels like comment coming later from John. But before we hit that comment, I want to think how Nicodemus might have felt as a teacher in Israel. Maybe it's how you feel. I don't understand this rebirth. I don't understand water and spirit. I don't get it. I'm hacked off. And then only at the very, very end of what Jesus has to say does he offer the clue that John can then take forward. Believe. The snake was lifted up and those who believed were healed. The Son of Man will be lifted up and those who believe will have life. But who can possibly believe? Well, according to John in his comment, anyone. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Nicodemus is old and possibly thinking of death. But uh, John takes the thinking of Jesus and expands it. God so loved the world, all can believe. And what is to be, be believed in is something for the world, not something impossible. It's actually there for the world to believe in. And the result is the very way out of the perishing that Nicodemus and others might be anxious about because they've got to a certain age. And all of us at some point are anxious about because death comes to all of us. But what's going on in verse 16 is John telling us how to get beyond death. And he goes backwards and forwards and he says it in the same thing in various, very slightly different ways. Verse 16, if you believe, you don't perish. Verse 17, God has come, in, God has sent his son not to condemn, but to save. But not condemning is what happens only when you believe. It's always about believing. Nicodemus came in darkness. But maybe that's because even the best religions got no answer. The most godly of diagnoses that's offered here is we'll always cling to the dark and flee the light. And at the very end of what John has to say there in verse uh, 21, we hear, what matters is not doing evil things which are plural in verse 21, but doing the truth. And that's singular. Believing in the one we recognize as the way, the truth, and the life. And if in your heart you say of yourself tonight, well, loving the darkness, fleeing the light, doesn't sound like me, I'm not that bad, then I have to tell you this stuff is going to be a completely closed book to you. I venture to say this. I do personally, I do personally get this. Not because I'm clever, it's because I know I am that bad. And there is no other way. And because verse 16 is famous, we can approach this passage as though it sounds all the way through like good news. But imagine, how, imagine what poor Nicodemus felt. He must have got more and more desperate because he arrived from off God, knowing his qualifications to examine Jesus. And Jesus says they don't count for squat. Only the desperation in the middle of the plague led to the raising up of the bronze snake. 
And only desperation, a kind of end of the tether, end of tetherness, will lead us to find verse 16 in its proper place. The answer to the desperation, where we trust in, rely upon, believe in Jesus. Doesn't mean you have to feel desperate, by the way, tonight. It's, it's not, you don't have to be all twisted up inside. It might be a cool, considered recognition that actually this is probably right and reasonable. That salvation has to come from outside and not be something I achieve, giving birth to more of the same. So let me finally apply it in two ways. Firstly, there's a reasonable chance that any crowd this size contains quite a few people who like the stuff around God, but who've never come to terms with that demand, that incredibly stark demand from Jesus, you must be born again. There is not a single human being in this room tonight who does not need to face those words. There's actually not a single human being walking past out there who doesn't need to face them. But they've been addressed to you tonight. Perhaps you've never acknowledged the state of your heart in those terms that Jesus uses and said, I prefer darkness to light. I am sorry for that. Please forgive me. I will henceforth trust in Jesus Christ upon the cross and not trust in myself. Please put your trust in him tonight. And if you're scared about what you might have to give up, that's okay, that's understandable, and you may be very right to be scared. You may have to give up quite a lot of one life and have to trust that you'll gain quite a lot in another. But if you really want, I will sit you down and I will scare you a great deal more about the alternative. Whatever else it means, it means this. If you want rebirth, it's not something you achieve. Your end of it is to put your trust in him and he will look after the rebirth. Secondly, many of these passages in St. John have this two-way focus. We apply them to those of us who've not yet put our trust in them. We do so with a real urging, but we also apply them to those of us who have. Because this is also diagnostic about those we know and care for. Some people long for rebirth. You'll know some of them. But they really just want to change in circumstances. Others see where Jesus may be going and are very twitchy. They sense this is a moving of the center of the will from me to God. But the message is the same for each one. And to me it sounds thunderous on the lips of Jesus. You must be born again. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is the Jesus, Jesus, the Lord of all, saying to every man and woman and boy and girl, you must be born again. Finally, it doesn't matter whether your friends and family look forward to it or dread it. It is the only way through. It is the only way out of that quagmire. So we must speak out the whole message and not sell it short. Now, I've said a lot. I know that. It's been a long sermon. There's a lot needs explaining in that passage. Some of you may feel churned up. Perhaps there's a loved one who is dying. Religious, but with no confidence in rebirth. Perhaps you are one of those who's just simply nervous because it all feels like too big a change from where you are now. Well, I can't tell you how much sympathy I have for you. I've watched many others agonize over it. Do please talk to a believer known to you. If you don't know any, 
talk to me or to Megan or John Malcolm or any of the people who've been up here tonight. Just remember this. Verse 16 is famous for a reason. God loves the world. Let's pray. Our trust in Jesus Christ is a trust that looks to him to deal with the darkness. And as I say, Lord have mercy or Christ have mercy, would you please respond with those same words? I'm going to use words from a psalm, the songbook of old Israel. Psalm 51. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And so hear these words, versions of which many of us hear every week. But perhaps for you they'll mean something special tonight. May the God of love and power forgive you and free you from your sins. Heal and strengthen you by his spirit and raise you to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.